Welcome to the Breaking Boundaries podcast. I'm Annalise Riles, Executive Director of Northwestern University's Roberta Buffett Institute for Global Affairs. The Northwestern Buffett Institute is dedicated to breaking through traditional silos of expertise, geography, culture, and language to surface novel solutions to pressing global challenges. I was very happy to see the delegation that, that came from Northwestern University in the Buffett Institute, students in political science or engineering that came, saw with my own eyes how these students' hearts and, and, and brains were moved by the heroic participation of indigenous peoples. The Northwestern University delegation that attended COP26 in Glasgow is back on campus. Of the many topics discussed at COP26, climate change and the roles and rights of Indigenous peoples was top of mind for our delegation. Here to discuss this topic is Professor Reynaldo Morales, an assistant professor at Northwestern University's Medill School of Journalism, Media, Integrated Marketing Communications, and a faculty fellow here at the Northwestern Buffett Institute for Global Affairs. Reynaldo was a participating member of the Local Communities and Indigenous Peoples Platform at COP26, a working group designed to connect people from seven regions of the world to share climate solutions, best practices, and Indigenous knowledge from some of the oldest living cultures on the planet. Originally from Peru, Rinaldo's research interests include Indigenous rights to genetic resources and knowledge systems. Welcome, Rinaldo. I'm so thrilled to talk to you today. Thank you very much for the invitation. According to the UN, there are an estimated 476 million Indigenous people in the world living in over 90 countries. Having just returned from COP and knowing the communities and the issues as you do, what are some of the principal concerns of indigenous communities when it comes to climate change? There is an emergence of a huge movement to restore indigenous people's rights that has been put in motion since the first report in the 70s from Martinez Co. at the United Nations that created a multidisciplinary engagement of indigenous peoples to challenge and change the situation in their national legislations and at an international law. So in this process, it is key to understand that indigenous peoples have distinctive law frameworks directly related to colonialism and neocolonialism in our time, and they're related to the impacts created by the formation of nation states, and also to power differentials created by immense human and material losses that affected and continue affecting indigenous peoples' chances to restore their lives and governance. So in the Climate Change Conference, there has been in place a long negotiation for the formal recognition that even uh, though indigenous peoples bear the least responsibility for climate change, they are the most adversely affected because their livelihoods and worldviews are based upon, related to, and dependent on ecological balance and ecosystem integrity, specifically on the negotiations uh, on this new climate change conference. I participated actually in the discussions and negotiations of the Article 6 of the Paris Agreement that were pending. What is Article 6 for people who are not involved? Article 6 of the Paris Agreement establishes the, the limits and boundaries of the cooperation frameworks between different constituent groups and nation states. 
And indigenous peoples is, is one of the key constituent groups and a distinctive one, as, as well as gender, religious, goods, and local communities and, and local institutions. And what was the point of the negotiations around Article 6 of the Paris Agreement at, at Glasgow? Because it was agreed upon in Paris, right? So why were they discussing it again? Well, this time there were uh, some few countries that actually contested the the main references to uh, human rights and the rights of indigenous peoples. So the first two countries that opposed the, the, the sole mention of uh, a rights-based approach in, in relation to human rights and rights of indigenous peoples at the beginning were Saudi Arabia and Iran. So the indigenous peoples delegation, and I was part of that technical committee actually, created three observations that were related to the inclusion and the consistency of the preambular paragraph 11 of the Paris Agreement to maintain that text and in operational text in Article 6.2 and 6.4, that also it should be maintained in Article 6.8 and added into the principles of the Annex of uh, 6.8 on that same Article 6 of the Paris Agreement that it was pending of this discussion this time. I imagine that some of our listeners may say, whoa, this is really technical and who cares, right? Like what words are in the preamble or in that article? I mean, why does it matter? I mean, what would you say to people who say, this sounds really abstract and far away from reality? Indigenous peoples are a specifically distinctive stakeholder because they are under distinctive laws. We must understand that indigenous peoples have different laws than mainstream citizens of any country. Even there is a huge tension on the application of those laws, on the recognition of these laws. Let's say in the example of indigenous tribal communities in U.S., they have a, con a completely different constitutional law frameworks and legal frameworks than their regular citizens who live in any state. And some, many people don't know about that don't understand why, and this is related to specifically to the colonial history or the formation of nation states. And it matters because at the time when these legal provisions are discussed, indigenous peoples have, have a complete different treatment, different approach, and different legal uh, scopes and reaching agreements that, that are distinctive from other sectors of society. We come from uh, countries that have been uh, developed through processes of colonization. There were millions of millions, hundreds of millions of survivors of this process and that they have not been formally included into the formation of these nation states and into the development and economic, social and cultural development that mainstream communities have been incorporated into. And, and this is more acute when we talk about many uh, rural communities that live in, in, in relative isolation, in communities across the world that have been affected by many issues of economic development, uh, not only colonization, but neo-colonization, uh, the corporate development, uh, like, for example, issues of mining, fishing, and then the depletion of their natural resources, and many complex processes of political violence and tensions between these societies of survivors and mainstream communities that live under the new frameworks that nation states formation have be, been put in place. How did you feel about the final results at COP26? It's a mixed 
reaction for us. Certainly, we had, have had a relative success in the incorporation of applicable domestic and international standards in relation to the public participation of local communities and indigenous peoples. Still, we have the challenge of the acceptance of the compliance of the free prior informed consent of indigenous peoples as a normal standard mechanism that nation states have to respect in the relationship with indigenous peoples. We still have pending, and this is something that has been supported to have a grievance mechanism in the Article 6.4 about the proposal that indigenous international indigenous delegation did was about an independent body of grievance because the supervisory body that was suggested by the, the presidency and the countries could not review grievances or complaints from many indigenous peoples in the violation of multiple rights. So we needed an independent body that can avoid any conflict of interest. Many different things are, are happening right now. One of the key issues also that have not been satisfied completely is the role of local communities and indigenous people platform and how they, the local communities have been separated from the discussion specific to indigenous peoples in this, in this conference, because they have a complete different legal frameworks. The inclusion of local communities actually was an imposition of previous cops. And there is a huge issues because they, they don't have territories. They are represented by multiple institutions. Many of them are non-indigenous. They are religious associations, gender-based, or, or they represent um, exclusively peasant communities, farmers, and they're represented or intermediated by NGOs and other civil institutions. But some of them are indigenous-based, like in the case of campesinos in many different parts of the, of the Americas, for example. And there are multiple responses in constitutional reforms across the world that tried, especially, for example, in Mexico, that tried to make equivalent that these local communities that have campesino uh, ancestry and background could be considered indigenous and therefore subject to the protections of international law. So we have the insistence of the local communities and indigenous peoples platform that we will devote specifically to indigenous peoples in the climate change negotiations. And we will not focus specifically on local communities, either even that, that there are some of them are indigenous in their essence. So I specifically worked on the, a technical committee that reviewed and negotiated the modifications to Article 6 with the parties. And I was honored to work with uh, very sharp policy analysts and negotiators to engage at multiple levels of interaction with country delegations with the mission of educating and sensitize them in the implications of not addressing properly indigenous people's rights. The other issue that has been very interesting is that there are representatives that actually pushed for the complementary relationship of other counterparts, treaties, and platforms, like, for example, the Convention of Biological Diversity, the High-Level Political Forum on Sustainable Development, the Expert Mechanism of the Rights of Indigenous Peoples is based on human rights, etc., it, 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 that many of these recommendations or the movement uh, on around international law transpired and, and was considered here as a legal background for the proposals that indigenous peoples had at the climate change uh, conference. So I specifically worked on the, a technical committee that reviewed and negotiated the modifications to Article 6 with the parties. And I was honored to work with uh, very sharp policy analysts and negotiators 
to engage at multiple levels of interaction with country delegations with the mission of educating and sensitize them in the implications of not addressing properly indigenous people's rights. So it's interesting, you know, what you say about the ways in which indigenous voices get watered down or lost in other groups like local communities or religious organizations and the ways in which COP was in your view, a mixed bag. And I think a lot of people had that reaction that there were some good things and then there were also some real limitations around things like how much compensation we're going to pay to communities that have already suffered damage from climate change and whether or not we're really going to ban or stop subsidies to coal and gas and so on. So as we start to think about the next COP, COP27, in only a year's time and the work ahead of us over the next 10 years, our our window for addressing many of these issues, you're such an interesting figure, Rinaldo, because you worked outside the university, inside the university, in the media, in international institutions, with indigenous communities, with that broad perspective that you bring. What do you think is the specific role for universities at this moment in this fight? The role of uh, universities is is key. We have definitely a strategic role uh, that universities play in terms of supporting not only the negotiations in a different way, but as we have, is the division of different competencies in, in, in qualified and skillful participation of, of multiple contributors. In the role of the research universities, in particular research universities, there is an, an the possibilities, the opportunities of a greater role of facilitating discussions and in, in, in issues that, are, that pertain uh, to the COPs and that have been discussed mostly in these arenas um, in a rush. Because when we come here in the COPs, the only thing that you receive are documents and a bunch of documents that and everybody has to uh, read in their own times. And when we go, when we go there, everybody's supposed to have read all these vast amount of text and actually are informed of the negotiations and, and outcomes of different other previous conferences. And it's a very unrealistic process. Then research universities have actually the mayor opportunity, the greatest advantage, especially our institution, the Buffett Institute of Global Affairs, to promote a new level of dialogue prior or as part of the process in which nation states, key stakeholders, right holders, and, and contributors, researchers, for example, gather prior to these to this COPs and these gatherings in order to discuss alternatives and have common ground without the rush of creating an outcome that in many cases is based on the urgency of the moment and the need to to establish an economy of resources, right? And it's always insufficient. Not many institutions can play that that key role. It's it's all subject to funding. It's all subject to selective funding, actually. And many confusion regarding the roles in which technical commissions, activist institutions, like civil institutions, NGOs, and also corporations play on, on this debate. And we need to like clarify the ground. And, and I think that in, in terms of, or in the case of research universities, we can actually contribute to the gathering of technical groups. 
technical committees and technical commissions on reviewing a specific language or a pre-agreement, uh, certain portions of uh, the research community that, that have been developing field research and, and policy research and, and serve uh, nation states representatives and, and their limited understanding of indigenous issues to update their, their knowledge and their discussions about impacts, opportunities, challenges, and possibilities of, of partnership that exists among us. And it's a lot of work that ha- can be done in preparation of these COPs and the research universities and, and institutions like, like ours can play a huge and important role. So I have uh, a, a huge hope that the delegation that, that came from Northwestern University in the Buffett Institute see now with different eyes this potential. And it, I, I was very happy to see students in political science or engineering that came actually facilitating the dialogue between them and members of the, the international people's delegations and, and nations to interview, to meet the delegates, to actually see the tension in which in the, in the rush in which we were all, all working, to see the dynamics and under which and different commitments that we were all subject to. I think they have a new understanding. Uh, I, I saw with my own eyes how these students' hearts and, and brains were moved by the heroic participation of indigenous peoples in defending the rights and presenting an articulated uh, response and articulated proposals. These members of these indigenous communities that are working in international policy are making history. It's not, it was not up to, to actually nation states to change those relationships. They opposed for many decades. They have been opposing the things that today were considered at this COP that were key for the new uh, partnership that are needed for effective changes. So we have reached an, uh, a new level because of that, that heroic and skillful and educated intervention and technical participation of indigenous people. And I'm so glad that the scholars of the Buffett uh, Institute were there to see it and, and to understand now. You really give us all hope. The agenda that you lay out for universities is daunting, but so exciting. So I really look forward to your, your leadership in pushing this forward at Buffett. Thank you so much, for Rinaldo, for all that you do and for the insights you've provided for us today. Thank you so much. For more information on this episode and on the Northwestern Buffett Institute for Global Affairs, visit us at buffett.northwestern.edu.